Let's bow and pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning asking for your help, asking for wisdom that comes from you, and so we turn to you, we turn to the truth of your Word, and we ask for help this morning. We ask you to work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would humble us to receive your Word. Lord, help us to not merely be those who hear your Word, but Lord, help us to be doers of your Word. Lord, we pray that you would deepen our confidence in your great love for us and your Son, Jesus, even as we listen to your Word. We pray for any that would be here this morning who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray you would direct their minds and hearts to the truth of your Word and the truth found in the person of Jesus Christ and that you would lead them to saving faith this morning. Lord, I pray you'd help me to faithfully preach your Word this morning. Lord, it's a honor to preach your word, and I pray for your help to faithfully preach your word, to joyfully preach your word, that we would all be pointed to your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. When our summer series in Proverbs this summer, we've considered this question a couple of times. If the Lord gave you one request, one prayer request that he'd answer, what is it that you'd ask for? Well, maybe there's a pressing need you have this morning. Maybe there's a a health need. That's a wonderful thing to ask God for. But remember, you you only get one request. Maybe there's financial burdens that that you have this morning, uh, burdens that you need to be lifted, good things to ask God for, but you only get one request. Maybe it's a relationship that's in need of being strengthened. Certainly a relationship with the Lord, but horizontally, a relationship in your marriage, maybe with children, maybe with friends, something that you need God's help in, but you only get one request. Now, when I was a kid, I, I heard something like this, you know, it'd be like, if you only had three wishes, what would you wish for? And I thought to myself, well, of course, one wish should be unlimited wishes. It's kind of like the hack of it, right? Well, that's kind of cheating the system. If you only get one prayer request, how could you pray something that would actually have an unlimited impact? Well, this is a real-life scenario. First Kings chapter 3, King Solomon, one request, what did he ask for? Wisdom. And that request was granted to him, and we see in addition to that, the Lord blessed him with many other things, but that request for wisdom does have an unlimited impact, meaning wisdom from the throne of God imparted into your life will impact every relationship that you have, your, your relationship with God to honor him, every horizontal relationship that you have, it will impact how you view money. Whatever amount of money or whatever God's given to you materially, it will impact how you view it and how you use it. It will impact your physical health. I mean, whatever physical health God's given you, God's wisdom will impact you to be a good steward of that, to use that well at work. You see, God's wisdom will bless and will impact every single area of our life. And here in Proverbs chapter 6, King Solomon, who was granted that request, that one request that he would receive wisdom from God and all that he did, a wisdom that would be above any other king on earth, he records for his son in Proverbs chapter 6, wisdom. And he speaks to three different areas, money, work, and relationships. How, how God's wisdom impacts the way we view money, the way we think about work, and the way we think about relationships and how it is that we invest in them. Let's look at God's word this morning as we consider God's wisdom for everyday life and consider Proverbs chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 19. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't already done so. If you'd open up a copy of the Bible, if you need that, that copy of the Bible right in front of you, take that, use that this morning. And if you've come this morning, you don't own a Bible, use it this morning and then take it home with you. That's our gift to you. And then come see me or any other pastor. The doors, I'll be right over at this door. Other doors will have pastors. We'd love to talk with you more about connecting you with someone here where you can read the Bible with them and learn more about who God is and what He's done in Jesus. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. Let me read through all of this as we begin. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Well, as we consider this passage this morning, there's a main idea that I think connects all of these different thoughts here in Proverbs chapter 6. If you're taking notes, you can write this main idea down. God's wisdom shapes us to honor Him with our money, work, and relationships. God's wisdom shapes us to honor Him with our money, work, and relationships. That's the three different topics that King Solomon's addressing here in this section, and he's speaking about how God's wisdom comes to bear to shape us to honor Him in these areas. You know, wisdom isn't mere philosophy. When it comes to God's wisdom, things get practical, meaning that God's wisdom is to shape every area of our lives. And therefore, we see King Solomon addressing these three very specific and practical areas of money, work, and relationships. Think about your life this week you're going to have to spend money and think about money God's given you. There's some sort of work that he's given you to do, wherever that may be, in the workplace, in the home, whether you're a student, there's work to do. And there's relationships. There's opportunity for relationships right now, after the service, when you get home, all week, God's going to cross your path with people. And you'll have to think about what it is you're sowing into these areas. 
And the fact that these areas are represented in Proverbs chapter 6 in the Word of God and King Solomon's words to his son help us understand that at a basic level, God cares about all three of these areas of our lives. He cares about the way we think about money. He cares the, the way we think about our, our work. And he cares about what it is that we are sowing into relationships. And for those who are in Christ, it should also give us comfort. That God has, has given us wisdom in his son Jesus Christ. He is generous to give us wisdom. He invites us to ask him for wisdom. And therefore, in these areas of our life, God will give us wisdom. And the question is, Will you keep asking him and seeking that wisdom? Now, you may have noticed in this passage that I read through that there's a, a negative tone in this chapter. And that's because this section is full of, of warnings. Uh, so much of what we see here in these verses, it highlights folly that we are to avoid. Uh, so why the, the negative tone? Well, there are really two ways to grow in wisdom. And here's how the Proverbs presents growing in wisdom. One way to grow in wisdom is to highlight wisdom, to point out what it is we are to pursue, to hold up wisdom and to say, pursue that. But there's another way to grow in wisdom. It's to highlight folly and to say, avoid this. Look at wisdom, look at folly, look around you, look in your own lives, look to examples around you of both wisdom and folly and let that shape you. You see, this proverb equips us to walk in godly wisdom, to pursue what is right, and to avoid what is wrong and what dishonors God. Well, as we make our way through this passage this morning, we're going to break it up into three parts, and really three sets of instruction. The first, there in verses 1 through 5, avoid foolish pledges. That's the first instruction, avoid foolish pledges. That has to do with money, there in verses 1 through 5. We see in verse 1, this section addresses putting up security for your neighbor or giving a pledge for a stranger. And both of these have to do with assuming someone else's financial debt. That's what it has to deal with. So in modern times, this would be akin to co-signing on a loan. Right? If you co-sign on a loan, that involves you assuming the responsibility for the payment of someone else's debt. You've put your name onto their debt. So if they don't pay the debt back, you bear the responsibility. Now, why would someone need to co-sign in the first place? Well, the bank would view them as pretty risky. The bank would say, we're not ready to put our resources here. We've assessed the risk. This is too risky, so we need someone else who we think has the means, and we're confident, has the means to repay this, and you'll need to co-sign. So what we see here, it's, it's a risky venture because if they don't pay, you pay. So verse 2 provides the warnings of, of the dangers involved with this, saying this is, is risky. You may get trapped. You may get snared or, or caught. We read there in verse 2, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. So, so back in those days, your word was your commitment. It should still be your commitment. Your word should still be your commitment. But today, with financial obligations, this is often done by a contract. So your word is spelled out very clearly, and then you sign your name to your word, spelling out your commitments and then documenting those commitments. So, so putting your name on the line for someone else's debt 
is a risky situation that can put you in a bad financial situation. That's why there's caution given here, right? So this is just the the general occasion situation of what's being brought up here. The Proverbs has a lot to say about money. These particular verses just kind of hone in specifically on that situation. So you may wonder, is putting up security for someone wrong in every possible situation? You may wonder, well, should I never co-sign for my kids on a loan? Well, short answer, I'd say no. I don't think it's wrong in every possible situation. What we're dealing with in the Proverbs is general wisdom. However, what's stated here are probabilities. (laughs) So you should take caution. I mean, there's a lot of risk here. So the Proverbs, they show us what is often true, but not always true. So, So caution is given here. You need wisdom in this situation. Discernment about how you would make commitments, particularly with your money. In other words, it would be a rare situation that you would be willing to do this. A rare and specific situation if you chose to do it. The the risk, it goes on to be spelled out here in verses 3 through 5. Solomon tells his son what to do if you get in this situation and then you're trapped. Do this, save yourself. Urgent language there in verses 3 through 5. When you find yourself suffering bad consequences from a foolish decision, get out of there. Do everything you can to rush out of there to get off the path of foolishness and back onto the path of wisdom. So so focus your attention on getting out of that situation. We read in verse 3, plead urgently with your neighbor. Verse 4, even deny yourself sleep. It's more important to get out of that situation than to get your nightly rest. It's just communicating urgency to escape folly. And the two illustrations there in verse 5 with a gazelle and a bird. So you might see that at first. Like, well, what does a gazelle and a bird have to do with all of this? Well, they're just illustrations there. When an animal sees the danger of being hunted, they do everything they can to run away, to get away as fast as they can. If an animal's trapped, they will try to get out of the situation. I remember when I was a kid and my dad had our boat parked in our driveway, and the neighbor's cat loved to get inside of my dad's boat. And one day, the neighbor's cat got inside my dad's boat and got trapped in there. And that cat was scared to death and doing everything it could to get out of the boat and tore the inside of my dad's boat up and injured itself in the process. And we heard this loud howling, and everyone in the neighborhood came out to try to free this cat from my dad's boat. And I thought, why would that cat, like, break its jaw? I mean, they're like crazy things to get out of this boat. Well, when an animal's trapped and cornered, it will do everything to get out. That's what Solomon's doing here with a gazelle. And with the bird, if you find yourself in a trap, in a trap of folly, rush to get out of there. Give yourself to getting out of that situation. Well, the caution here, it concerns a risky situation of assuming someone else's debt. So you might think, what do we take away from this? Well, first off, let me be clear. The Bible does not forbid giving out loans. There's actually a number of Old Testament passages that address giving out loans. You need to do that with wisdom and discernment. But places like Exodus 22, verse 25, says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So it wasn't wrong 
to give alone, but there's a certain way that God's people would go about this. In other ways, what the Old Testament and the New Testament highlight, generosity. There are other options here to help someone out besides co-signing alone. One way is generosity, just to try to give them what it is that they need. In other words, the big picture here of money, what we all can take away, because you might think, well, I'm not co-signing a loan for anyone. I don't plan to do that anytime soon. So what does this proverb have to do with me? I think it highlights wisdom, but also the application of generosity. Don't become enslaved to money. It's saying it's possible for you to become enslaved to money. One way is here, crushing debt. And now you're working to pay the bank back versus your money being used as a resource. View the money that God has given you, however much or little, view it as a resource to serve Him and to serve others, to be generous to those around you. And one way for money to be a servant is to be generous with those around you. It's a resource to bless others. You know, one way we do that here in our church is that we have a benevolence fund for members of our church. So if there are members that are in need of our church and you find yourself in a difficult financial situation, maybe medical bills stacking up that you don't know how you're going to pay, maybe rent that's due and you're not sure how you're going to pay rent, a light bill that might get turned off, a car that conks out and you just don't have the money to pay for that, we want to help you, church member, as a church. We certainly help people outside of the church, but we understand we have an obligation first and foremost to other members of this church to do good, especially to the household of faith. And so there's ways that we do that. And if you're a member and you ever find yourself in that situation, uh, go and talk to our, our deacons of member care, Eric and Laura Swanson. They'd be happy to sit down with you and talk more with you about that. Certainly you can talk to any of the pastors, but our deacons of member care specifically oversee that area. And, and members of this church generally contribute their finances to that particular fund to help others. It's just one way, one example in our church that we see money being a servant to others, to those around us. Don't become a slave to money. Let money be a servant, that you serve God and others with it. Instruction number two is there in verses 6 through 11. Verses 6 through 11, work with diligence. Work with diligence. In this second section, Solomon jumps into some practical wisdom concerning hard work and laziness. And here you'll notice Solomon doesn't directly address his son, but rather he directly addresses the sluggard. What's a sluggard? Well, think of the word sluggish. Someone who doesn't take action. Someone who doesn't move. Someone who doesn't take the initiative. Someone who's irresponsible. The sluggard's a picture of laziness. And the direction here given is for the sluggard to look around at God's creation and to learn. We see there in verse 6, the direction to look at the ant. So consider the way that an ant works, how they work hard and diligently and learn from them. Verse 7 gives the observation that, that ants don't have anyone ruling over them. I know there's queen bee ants or whatever. If you, some of you all know all that stuff about biology or whatever. Uh, we know there's something there. But generally speaking, I mean, you just see ants. They're all over the place. They're working hard. Sometimes they're by themselves. Sometimes they're with a crew of ants. They're kind of doing their 
their thing. They're always busily moving about. In other words, they take initiative. No one has to tell them what to do. So what can you learn from an ant? Take initiative. Don't wait for someone to tell you what to do. In the workplace, at home, the life of the church, look for needs around you, look for opportunities, and take the initiative to meet them. In verse 8, another observation about the ant, they work diligently. They work hard preparing and gathering food to provide for the future, gathering enough food in the summer to be ready for the winter. No one tells them what to do. They work hard preparing for the future. In other words, ants are anything but sluggish, always working, always moving, always preparing. I, even when I woke up this morning, I saw my ring doorbell. It had this notification from 3.30 in the morning. I'm always like wondering. I get those frequently, and I'm hoping to see something kind of cool one day. I did see some, some deer at one point feasting on something. All I've seen is, is something like this, an ant crawling up uh, on the ring doorbell. And that's what it was. 3.38 this morning, there was an ant hard at work when the rest of us hopefully were asleep crawling up my ring doorbell. You've never seen an ant just kind of hanging out. You just don't. You don't see like ants just chilling, like sitting around, figuring out what to do. Maybe other animals, but not ants. Well, have you ever stepped on an anthill? When I was a kid, I, I, part of my childhood in Tampa, Florida, uh, we had these terrible fire anthills. They're all over the place. And we would love to do things like throw a soccer ball. In them. You don't want to step in them, right, because they would attack you very quickly. But we'd throw a soccer ball on them. I'd be amazed. You'd throw a soccer ball or something and destroy that anthill. And within just like 10 seconds, there's hundreds of ants crawling all over, working hard to rebuild that ant colony. In other words, they're moving, they're preparing, they're working, going into a frenzy to recover the hill. They're industrious creatures. I read this week even that the average worker ant, I don't know if this is accurate or not, I'm not that much into science, but this is what this article at least said. The average worker ant takes approximately 250 naps a day. Well, that sounds lazy, 250 naps a day, but it says with each one lasting just over a minute. So if you do see an ant just chilling for a minute, it's probably taking a power nap. This adds up to four hours and 48 minutes of sleep per day, and they're back at it 3.38 in the morning climbing up my ring doorbell. Look to the ant. Learn the wisdom of hard work. There's even a hint of sarcasm here. A full-grown human being needs to learn work ethic from a tiny little insect. It's a little bit of sarcasm towards the slugger. There in verses 9 through 11, it's the contrast. Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? The slugger doesn't get out of bed. The slugger doesn't work hard during the harvest. The slugger doesn't provide for others or prepare for the future. The slugger just lays there and stays in bed. And the laziness, it starts with kind of rationalizing that type of behavior. So we see in verse 10, it gives a view to the mindset of the slugger. Well, just a little sleep. Just a little folding of the hands that turns into more and more sleep and the hands remaining folded and at, at rest. You see, a lot of little lazy decisions can lead to one big problem. 
becoming a slugger. And notice the result of a lazy lifestyle. Poverty. That's what we read in verse 11. Laziness, it will sneak up on you like a robber. Like an armed man sneaks up on you, and by the time you see him, it's too late. The harm has come, and you're a victim. So it is with with laziness. Let me be clear here. This proverb is not suggesting that all poor people are lazy. Certainly not saying that. Not all poor people are lazy, and not all lazy people are poor. I think what it's saying here, generally speaking, there is certainly a category of some people that poverty is self-inflicted. That's what this proverb is addressing. Those whose laziness has gotten them into a foolish and difficult situation. And it's generally true, if you are lazy, that will lead to your ruin. Now, you and I should be aware of consequences for sin and folly. The proverb is clear about consequences and normal consequences. But let me be clear that our motivation as Christians is not merely to avoid bad consequences. The Christian life is not merely just about avoiding bad consequences in our lives. As Christians, rather, we have a motivation, a a holy motivation we've been given by God to work for the glory of God. We sang this morning, and I will glory in my Redeemer, that the Lord bought our lives. If you're a Christian this morning, that what you're saying here is that I've been bought and paid for with a price, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. I belong to Him now. That's why I call myself a Christian. I follow Jesus. He's my Lord, meaning He's my master. He's my owner. He's given me every breath, and therefore He owns every breath. What do I have that I did not receive? The physical health I have there this morning, I've received that. Whatever uh, material blessing you have, you think, well, I worked hard for that. I went to school for a long time to get this job. Who gave you the benefits to be able to go through school? The physical energy, the mental capacity, the talents that you have, they've all been given to you by God. And therefore, everything you have, what have you not received. As Christians, we have a motivation to work for the glory of God because everything we have, every opportunity we have has been given to us by Him, and therefore we're in the privileged positions to be stewards, stewards of God's gift in our lives. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, a wonderful passage that helps us think about every area of our life honoring God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink basic Basic tasks that even animals do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, meaning everything, do all to what? The glory of God. You see, God gives us time. He gives us life. And as Christians, we want to spend it well. He's given us our jobs, whatever work He's given us, whether we enjoy it a whole lot. There's kind of this notion, this wrong notion, I think, amongst my generation and younger, I need to do something I really love. Well, it's wonderful to do things you really love, but we also should understand after Genesis 3, work is hard. And those of us who love our jobs here, let's be honest, we probably love 80% of it. It's probably 20% of it we don't really enjoy that much. That's pretty good. If you enjoy 80% of your job, you're in a good spot. Don't think you need to move on. Those days you're in the 20%, it's not going well. Have a realistic expectation of work and then have a broader understanding of work. God's given me this assignment to do right now, and I want to do it for His glory. I want to work as unto him. I want to work the the way that Daniel was praying this morning. 
uh, unto the fear of the Lord. I want to consider how I can honor God in the work and the job He has given me. We know that work is good. It was always the plan to work. Had Adam and Eve never sinned, you and I would still be working. They were given the job to tend to the earth. Genesis 3, after they sinned against God, we understand that the curse of sin and the curse of the fall impacted work. By the sweat of your brow, you'll work, meaning it'll be difficult. It'll be hard. And Proverbs 6 spells out one of those difficulties. You and I will be tempted toward laziness. That's one difficult thing about work. We'll be tempted toward laziness. We need to be on the guard against it. And if we look closely, and if we're honest, inside each one of us, there is some laziness. Sometimes, man, we can binge work, like work really hard, and then we just crash. We just want to get away from things. Sometimes you may be tempted to work really, really hard at the office, but then you climb those steps leading up to your front door, and you want to come in and just veg and disconnect and not be responsible with what God's given you to do. If we're honest, we are tempted towards laziness in so many different ways. Some are lazy in their place of work. Some are lazy in relationships, work hard at work, but lazy in marriage, lazy in parenting. Sometimes you can be lazy in your church membership, not take the initiative to invest in in others. You see, if we want to honor God, brothers and sisters, let's be on the guard against laziness and press against it. Let's understand that Christ redeems our work, meaning when you put your faith in Jesus, that we view our work and see our work now as an opportunity to honor God, that in every action, working in the home, in the workplace, at school, at church, we desire to bring God glory because we've been bought and paid for with a price, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And no matter your age or your life stage, let's be those who think about how we can be faithful in our work. I love how many kids and teenagers we have here in the building, in the room this morning, work hard at those things that really aren't that exciting, like taking out the trash when mom or dad asks you to do that. Work hard in your chores and your responsibilities. Some of you are having your first summer job at 15 or 16 years of age. It's a wonderful training ground to work hard there, to learn responsibility. And don't, don't just work hard for the person who pays you a wage. Come home and work hard for mom and dad. They pay you in ways you don't see feed you and clothe you and put a roof over your head, and they're always going to be there for you. Work hard and and practice at that at a young age. And Christ, I think first and foremost in this local church, He redeems us as a church to work hard. We say this so often here, we don't want to see the local church as a club you join that comes with amenities. We don't see the local church as a family you're a part of that comes with responsibilities. A healthy church, think of it kind of like an ant colony. I mean, just different people moving about, working diligently, hearing from God's Word, and us not needing to be told everything to do, but to take the initiative. We hear God's Word, and we want to live that out. People moving all over the place, busy about the work of the Lord, busy about building each other up, urgently pursuing the Lord's work and being diligent about that. And I am so thankful for so how how often I see that here. I mentioned our members meeting last Sunday night when several of our members, the Hales, when their movers backed out on them at the last minute and they had to be out of their house, they sent out kind of an SOS text 
And within about 30 minutes, by the time I got over there, there was about 20, 25, 30 members. They kept coming throughout the night, busy like ants, lifting stuff out of their home, getting it onto their own vehicles in a small U-Haul to help them get moved there in the matter of a few hours. I love that picture of diligent work. You know, th- this past week, we had two funerals in one week. We, I don't know that we, we rarely have two funerals in one year. But in God's providence and in His timing, we had two funerals in one week. And funerals, you don't have a lot of time to plan for. But you all jumped into action. You jumped into action and served these families, the Purvises and the Parkers, in so many ways, making meals, baking desserts, coming here and, and helping get things ready, playing instruments, leading music for these funerals, loving and serving our sister Sarah Purvis and so many others in their families, serving them in the Lord. I'm so thankful that as a pastor, I feel like you're a reliable congregation. You can be counted on to step up and to work diligently. That's an evidence of God's grace, and let's pray that He continues to bring that fruit in the life of this church. And the final lesson we see here in verses 12 through 19, sow seeds of unity. This has to do with relationships. Final lesson, sow seeds of unity. God cares about our relationships. He cares about how we treat others. He cares about our words, our actions. And He cares about the heart behind our words and our actions. God cares about it all. And He calls us to be those who sow seeds of His wisdom into our relationships. The warnings continue here. The main warning of this section is this. Avoid being one who sows discord. We see that at the end of verse 14 and at the end of verse 19. Avoid being one who sows discord. That's the caution. Now, discord is strife. Discord is is bitter and angry disagreement. There's nothing wrong with disagreement. Bitter and angry disagreement dishonors God and tears others down. Being divisive means not just we disagree, not just we fall into the separate sides of this particular doctrinal issue or this particular position, it means that we're being divisive, tearing down the other person, coming after their character. And that's all sowing discord. And what's in view here is not somebody who's merely relationally clumsy. You know, like someone who, who, all of us, maybe lack tact in some moment. We say something we shouldn't say, or we say something in a way, or even with a nonverbal gesture that, that just isn't helpful. We're not talking about being relationally clumsy. What's in view here is a person who's aggressively sinning, tearing down others aggressively. And this warning comes in two paragraphs describing the wickedness of a person who sows discord in a relationship. The first paragraph in verses 12 through 15 describes a, a worthless and wicked person. And the second paragraph in verses 16 through 19 describes things the Lord hates. And simply put here, fools sow discord. The big warning. Now back at the end of Proverbs 4, we considered the anatomy of wisdom. Pastor Johnny preached that week, the anatomy of, of wisdom. There it mentioned the, the heart, the tongue, the eyes, and the feet, and how those particular body parts are to pursue the path of wisdom. Here we see those same body parts, but we see the anatomy of wickedness. Back in chapter 4, keep your heart with all vigilance, 
Put away crooked speech. So that's the tongue. Let your eyes look directly forward. Turn your foot away from evil. That's the path of, of wisdom. Those same body parts mentioned here in Proverbs 6, verses 12 through 19, the heart, the tongue, the eyes, and the feet. Here we see the anatomy of wickedness showing what to avoid. First, in verses 12 through 15, the description of the worthless person. Worthless means good for nothing, unprofitable. Look at the anatomy here of the worthless person in verse 12. Goes about with crooked speech. That's the tongue. Verse 13, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. It's a picture of the whole body contributing to sowing discord, dividing people rather than uniting people, tearing down malicious behavior, ill intent, hurtful words and actions. And then there's a numerical list in verses 16 through 19, the second paragraph, which I think really is kind of a, a type of commentary on the previous paragraph. You see a list here of six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And you might think, well, why not just say seven things? Why say six then seven? Well, that's a Hebrew literary device. And this device, it highlights the final item on the list. So think of the first six as kind of building up a ladder to highlight the top of the ladder, the seventh item there. This numerical list, it uses strong language to describe what God thinks about those who sow discord. He hates that type of wickedness. You may rightly think, well, God hates sexual immorality. He does. You may rightly think, well, God hates pornography. God hates drunkenness. God hates all of these kind of clearly obvious, terrible things, and He does. But if you thought about this, God hates when discord is sowed in any setting, but particularly amongst His holy people. This list here, an abomination to Him. That means this disgusts him. It's a picture of something that it turns his stomach almost. It's kind of given that picture. You know, there, there's something you have seen or smelled or been around. It's turned your stomach. Like it's affected you. It's impacted your, your, your moment. You can't, you can't deny or overlook what it is that just turned your stomach. That's a picture of how the Lord hates sowing discord. God has a deep hatred for these Seven human vices. Let's go through them. Seven human vices. Again, here the anatomy of wickedness. Number one, verse 17, haughty eyes. Haughty meaning pride. Prideful, arrogant eyes. A, a proud look that exalts self over others, does not honor others. God hates haughty eyes, and He will humble the prideful. Haughty eyes tend to be easy on oneself and really critical on others. Never self-critical, just critical on others. Haughty eyes sometimes can even come in of how thankful you are for your good theology. And others around you, if they could just have as good of theology as you. Haughty eyes can be, I'm so thankful I have these convictions of holiness. I would never listen to that song or watch this movie, but you did. I wish you would act more like me. It can often look religious. It can often seem pious. If you've got convictions, thank the Lord for those and walk in those humbly. 
If you have the benefit of receiving any sort of theological training, even here as a church, be thankful for that. And ask God to use that to humble you, to rely on Him more. God hates haughty eyes. Number two on the list, a lying tongue. In any sort of deceitfulness or dishonesty. You know, we, we even read this morning, slander is dishonest. It's not telling the truth about someone. Gossip is not telling the truth. Be careful about getting the tea or wanting to have the tea. I, I know that language because I'm a parent of a teenager. If that doesn't make sense to you, getting the tea just means trying to find out the gossip, the word on the street. It's often not true. And you're participating in deceitful language. God hates that. Have an eye vertically of what he thinks about that. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood, referring to violence of many kinds. Anything that would use hands to shed innocent blood to harm others. Number four, verse 18, a a heart that devises wicked plans. So certainly your actions, what you do with your hands and what you say with your tongue matters to God, but our hearts also matter. The heart behind our words, the heart behind our actions. What's seen here is a desire for wickedness, plotting to do evil, planning to do something that dishonors God. Now notice that the heart is listed at the center of this list. It's number four, the center from which words and actions flow. Guard your heart. Keep watch over your heart with all vigilance. Number five on the list, feet that make haste to run to evil. So a heart that devises wicked plans leads to feet that quickly pursue evil. God hates that. Number six on the list, verse 19, doesn't use a body part, but points to acts that sow discord in relationships. So a false witness who breathes out lies, consciously speaking what is false. God hates that. The seventh thing that's an abomination to the Lord that he hates, again, this Hebrew literary device, the previous six items like a ladder, steps on a ladder, making its way up to, to this, really to understand the previous six. You've got to understand the seventh thing the Lord hates, one who sows discord among brothers, someone who unleashes conflict, angry, bitter disagreement, someone who tears down unity instead sows seeds of strife. Now, if you back up to verse 15, the warning is given there for this type of living and acting. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. It may seem like the one who sows discord is getting away with their behavior. But in the end, they will face destruction. Christ will judge every careless word speaking. So certainly he will judge those that are consciously lying and tearing others down. Destruction will come suddenly. God will judge them in the end. That's describing a wicked person, not a Christian, verse 15, not saved. So the warning here to the righteous, don't act like the wicked. Be careful. There's still going to be evidence of sin in the world in our lives. Be sensitive to that. Don't act like the world around. You've been redeemed. You've been bought and paid for by a price. There's another way. There's another path. It's the path of wisdom. You didn't put yourself on that path. God did. He saved you. He firmly placed your feet there. You still live this side of heaven, which means we're going to be tempted, and we're going to find ourselves far too often on the path of folly, far too often on the path of wickedness, far too often doing the things we don't want to do. Be sensitive to that. Don't act like the world. The warning here to the righteous, sowing discord among brothers, 
God hates this. It displeases him greatly. It is an abomination to him. Well, Christian, are you sensitive to what God hates? It's a great thing to pray. God, help me hate more the things you hate. Help me love more what pleases you. Help me be quick to recognize hurtful ways within me that displease you. You see, when, not if, but when we see signs of pride, dishonesty, anger in our lives, wicked intentions in our lives, when our feet are, are quickly making its way to evil, when you have the opportunity, you're sitting at the fork in the road, and you have the opportunity, you know it, very clear, this is going to please God, this isn't. Ask God for help in the midst of temptation. He's already provided the way of escape. Ask for his help to take that way of escape. You see, Christians, we should be grieved and, and we should be bothered when we displease God. And a Christian, by God's grace, will keep repenting, keep turning away from the path of folly, will we'll come to recognize what dishonors God, and by God's grace, walk in repentance. You see, when we find our feet running toward evil, we don't want to stay there. By God's grace, we turn back to Jesus, who leads us on the path of wisdom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not worthless people, and we should not act like it. We have been redeemed, taken from being worthless people to being a people of worship. We don't give ourselves to what is worthless. We give ourselves to worship. And what happens here corporately in worship on Sunday morning, we would ask for God's grace that would shape us to live lives of worship throughout the week. That's Christian growth. You see, the good news is that Christ redeems the whole person. He laid down, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, He laid down His whole body on the cross, leaving nothing behind, willingly laying down His life, the Son of God, to die and pay for sins. He laid down His whole body to redeem your whole body. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, His whole body dying on the cross, his whole body laying in the tomb for three days, his whole body rising from the dead on the third day, his whole body ascending to the right hand of the throne of God. There in Acts chapter 1, which we've read recently, his whole body given, buried, raised, ascended for your whole body to be pleasing to him. Your words, your actions, the feet, like that, that talks about the decisions you make, the path you travel. And first and foremost, he changed your heart, placing the Holy Spirit of God in your heart, washing away your sins as far as the east is from the west, removing your sin from you, no longer counted against you, the righteousness of Christ freely credited to your account if indeed you've repented of your sin and placed your trust in him. And if you're here this morning, you haven't done that yet. You haven't trusted in Jesus you need to think about that. What's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus today? And then talk about that with someone who brought you. Or come see me right down here after. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to get right with God and to be changed by Him today. And for those who've put your faith in Christ, church, He's redeemed your whole body to be pleasing to Him. For those who put your faith in Jesus Christ at the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell inside of you changing you, giving you desires to honor God, causing you to walk in obedience to His Word. Through the Spirit of God in us, we've been transformed to have tongues that speak the truth in love. 
hands that protect and provide, a heart that plans to do good to others, a heart that plots how we can honor God and honor those around us, feet that run to what is good and run away from what is evil, feet that take the joy and the hope of the gospel wherever they go. We've been made taken away from being false witnesses and by God's grace transformed to be witnesses to the truth about Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we desire to be those who dwell in unity with brothers, living in harmony, not sowing discord, but living in one accord in the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore giving ourselves to sowing seeds of unity in those around us. That sounds a lot like Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in what? Unity. It's what God gives us in Jesus. You see, a healthy church is one where people are aggressively moving away from what is worthless and aggressively moving toward worship and living lives of worship to glorify God in what we say and do. Brother and sister, how often did you ask God for wisdom last week? How often was that a part of your prayer? Certainly we, we pray longer prayers, we do that on Sunday mornings, maybe even in the moment, walking towards your office, a great time to pause and pray, God, give me wisdom in how I conduct myself today. Maybe when you find yourself getting at home at the end of the day, God, give me wisdom to serve my family. In the morning, to spend time in God's Word, God, give me wisdom in what I do and say today. How often did you ask God for wisdom last week? Well, there's good news. You can ask Him more today. He delights to hear your prayers. He is far more willing to give us wisdom than we are often willing to ask. He is generous. He is good. He is a kind God. And His wisdom will shape us to honor Him with our money, with our work, with our relationships, that we would seek to please Him and give glory to God in whatever it is that we do. Let's bow now. Let's ask Him for that. Father, we're in need of wisdom, we're in need of, of help that comes from you. We turn to you and we ask, Lord, we thank you that you are so generous, you're so merciful and kind to give wisdom to your people. You were the one who pursued us and saved us and transformed us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and you're the one that promises to always be with us through the Spirit of your Son, Jesus, never leaving us or forsaking us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would grow us in our confidence in you. Humble us to see more our need of you. Make us more sensitive to ways that we live and speak and act that dishonor you. And help us to live out of this redeemed heart that you've given us that we would increasingly seek to honor you. Lord, help us to look to Christ, to rest in him, to rest in his mercy. That though our sins, they are many, those who are in Christ this morning can say his mercy is more. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.